Powered by Clear Vision Development Group, this is Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast. Each week, we'll provide you with top business insights, fresh perspectives from world-class guests, and the tools you need to lead better than before. And now, here's your host, author and business coach, Tony Richards. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the program where we are expecting Meghan Markle and Prince Harry are going to be stripped of their British royal titles by the Queen, and we want to be the first to offer them the opportunity to be our official royalty here at Better Than Before. You don't get very much for it, but hey, it's a title. Today on the program, my guest will be Jeff Wald. He's the founder of an organization called Work Market, and his book is called The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. We'll talk to Jeff about the future of jobs and work in just a few minutes, and I'll be showcasing in our leadership and business lesson a little later on in the program, I will lay out something called the almost impossible task of calming someone down. That's all coming up today on Better Than Before, sponsored by University Subaru. Join us for the Subaru A Lot to Love event going on now. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. Because adventure still needs chasing, we gave the newly redesigned 2021 Subaru Crosstrek a more powerful engine. Plus, standard symmetrical all-wheel drive. And Subaru is the most trusted brand for six years running, according to Kelly Blue Book. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Join us for the Subaru A Lot to Love event going on now. University Subaru. Homegrown and proud of it. See dealer for details. Are you working twice as hard but enjoying fewer rewards? Maybe you're highly accomplished but you just can't seem to break through and make the next big move. Or you run a business that has begun to grow stagnant. It doesn't have to stay that way. Even the best leaders have felt as if their careers were spiraling out of control, but that's when they had to lead and lead big. Tony Richards' new book, The Big Idea, 52 Ways to Be a Better Leader Now, will help launch you forward in leadership. Learn how to take charge and lead yourself, lead others, and lead your company. Purchase online today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and our website, clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back to Better Than Before. Jeff Wald is our special guest today. He's the founder of Work Market, an enterprise software platform that enables companies to manage freelancers. Uh, and that has been acquired by ADP, by the way. Jeff has founded several other tech companies, including Spinback, a social sharing platform eventually purchased by Salesforce.com. And he began his career in finance, serving as managing director at activist hedge fund Barrington Capital Group, and uh, he was a vice president of venture capital firm Glenrock and performed various roles in the M&A group at J.P. Morgan. 
He's an active angel investor and startup advisor, as well as serving on numerous public and private boards of directors. He also formerly served as an officer in the auxiliary unit of the New York Police Department. Jeff is the author of a couple of books, The Birthday Rules, and also his newest work that we're going to talk about today, The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Jeff frequently speaks at conferences and in media on startups and labor issues. That's what he's doing here today. He also holds an MBA from Harvard and an MS and BS from Cornell University. Just to kind of get us into our topic with Jeff today, as the robots rise, we are faced with the end of jobs, but not in the way you might think. The world has witnessed three-step functions in technological change, mechanization, electrification, and computerization. These industrial revolutions led to massive increases in productivity, and thus we need fewer workers. With each of these technological breakthroughs, the power balance between companies and workers shifted heavily to companies. And we're going to talk about all that with Jeff uh, here today. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. You bet, man. It's good to talk to you. I love the book. Thanks for sending me a copy. And uh, where, where are you uh, today? You know, if we had had this conversation at any other point, I would say Manhattan. Okay. That's where I live. Yeah. But uh, given the snow and winter and COVID and quarantines, I have uh, absconded to uh, Miami. Ah. So I'm down here for another few months. Yeah, there you go. Well, not a bad place to be this time of year, actually. Uh, it's usually pretty warm and sweaty in Miami. It is beautiful down here. I love it. But I can't wait to get back home and back to New York City. New Yorkers uh, always say there's no place like, like New York any time of year. That is very true. So what led you to write about the end of jobs as we know them? So what led me to write the book was frustration. Frustration with people that make predictions about the future of work without any basis in the evidence. We have this huge body of evidence, the history of work, the data around the world of work, and how companies actually engage workers. And if we're not using that to make predictions about the future of work, those predictions have a very low probability of coming true. I think about things like when I founded Work Market, there was a prediction that 50% of the labor force would be on demand by 2020. I found a work market in 2010. That prediction was ridiculous. It never had any chance of coming true. And yet everyone kept talking about it, saying it, this was the future of work. If you looked at history, if you looked at data, if you actually think about how companies engage workers, you would know that that prediction had no chance of coming true. Hmm. And yet people talked about it. So what I tried to do in the book is to do a very long look at history, do a very deep dive into the data and data trends, and speak with as many men and women that are making decisions about labor force resource management, that think about how companies engage workers, how they deploy capital, to really get a sense of their decision-making process. If we use those, we can have a better or a higher probability of making uh, predictions on the future. You absolutely had me like from the get go with chapter one. I mean, I loved reading about the history of work and um, you, you laid out the premise and the foundation for your case. And it was, it was great. 
Can you, you. kind of take us through the three phases, the mechanization, electrification, and computerization, like the hallmarks of each one of those phases, what started sure. them, and, and then what led to the next one and so on? So as you pointed out in the intro, there are these three different industrial revolutions that we as a society have gone through where this balance of power so massively shifts that workers, companies, and society need to think about how do we renegotiate the contract between us. So the first movement was what we call mechanization. Mechanization is the movement from hand power to machines. It was focused in the textile industry in England, and it moved very slowly over about 100 years into some other industries uh, and other geographies. But we saw about a 600 times increase in the ability to manufacture clothing, right? It used to be a person would sit there and pick their own cotton and create yarn and thread and then create clothing from it. And now we had the cotton, uh, you know, the spinning jenny and the weaving loom and the cotton gin. These things mechanized that process. They took it out of the hand and moved it to the machine. We then moved to electrification. And that is the movement of electricity into those machines. Prior to that, they've been powered mostly by steam, by wind power, water power. And electricity allowed for this other step function of productivity with that machine. Now, instead of a human running a spinning jetty or steam running a cotton gin, you could have electricity and start thinking about industrial um, combines, pulling cotton and things like that. And you again see a huge increase in productivity. The last industrial revolution is computerization, where we created an entire digital world that just didn't exist. And again, huge productivity increase as we think about how companies and workers start to use computers and technology in order to increase their productivity. So whether it's word processing or spreadsheets or billing, or I mean, a thousand different processes, have massively increased productivity because we're doing it on a computer as opposed to pen and paper. So those were our three industrial revolutions. And you know we sit at the precipice or really in the early innings of the fourth industrial revolution with robots and AI. Yeah. Yeah. I, I set myself up to win a great trivial pursuit question by reading that first chapter because I learned that John Sweeney Jr. got the first social security number. That he did. Right. He was 23 and he was chosen at random from a, a pool of people who registered on December 1st, 1936. So you made some interesting points around the Great Depression there, which led us in then to the something called the lifetime employment contract. So and you say this contract's been broken. So tell us a little about that. Well, first, I would argue that it never really existed. OK. Look, did lifetime employment, the idea that. You work for the same company, you march towards your gold watch, they pay for your retirement and your health care. Look, did that exist for some workers at some companies? Of course it did. But was that the standard for the American workforce in the 1950s and 60s? Absolutely not. Not even close. And I'll, I'll give you the data set sure. that, uh, that shows this. The average amount of time a person spends in a job today is 4.1 years. It was 4.2 years ago. Now it's 4.1. What do you think that was in 1960 when the Bureau of Labor Statistics started keeping this data? What would your guess be? 10. 
That's actually one of the best guesses I've heard, my friend. It's pretty good. People usually say 15, 20, 30, because everyone has this notion that everybody worked at the same company and marched towards their gold watch. The average amount of a time that an American worker spent in a job in 1960 was five years. Oh, wow. And by the way, in early 1990, it was like 3.9. Yeah. And so it kind of moves slightly between five and four. And it depends on some trends and some demographics, uh, trends, and that's what drives this. The structure of the workforce is not vastly different from that aspect than it was in 1960, but everybody likes to talk about the IBM job in 1960 as if that was the standard for every American worker, and it simply was not. I was just taking my average, my personal average. I think I've only worked for four companies besides being an entrepreneur, and the longest I ever stayed was 14, and I think the next longest was seven, so I just picked 10. Not bad. So it's not not as not not quite the same as the idea we have is your point. We we typically think and that that to me is an indicator of the transition a lot of companies are making from having pensions to having 401k's, right? Mm-hmm. Because the workforce has realized, "Hey, I want to take that with me. I don't I'm I'm not going to work here forever. I want that to be transferred to my next job." You're 100% correct. We see the transition from the defined benefit pension plan to the defined contribution plan to the 401k. We see it with healthcare and the amount companies contribute to a person's healthcare. We see it with training and development budgets per employee and how they've trended down over time. It goes to one of the other major themes of the book, which is something called convergence between the on-demand worker this mythical worker that was going to be 50% of the labor force by today. Uh, And people in the full-time labor market, they are converging in a lot of things that they worry about, like personal responsibility for healthcare and training and development and retirement around task-based work, around data-driven HR. And we delve into this pretty heavily in the book. Yeah. I love the quote from Jack Welch. That the satisfied customers are the only ones that can give you job security. 100%. (laughs) That's that's great. So what about the pros and cons uh, here as we move into a future where companies and employers are relying more on technology? What's good about that? And then maybe what's not so good about it? It's a great question. So what's good about it is the increased productivity that robots and AI will bring, as with every other industrial revolution, lowers the cost of production, meaning more goods can be produced more cheaply, leads to higher standards of living, and it leads to workers working fewer and fewer hours in order to achieve a higher standard of living. Like that is one of the few almost uninterrupted trends in the world of work. People have worked fewer and fewer hours almost every single year over the last 200 years. The standard of living has increased almost every single year over the last 200 years. And so those are the kinds of things that give me a lot of hope. Now, the downside is that the workers that lose their jobs have a difficult time transitioning to the companies, the geographies, the functions where work is growing. And as a society, we've done a terrible job of helping them transition. And so 
those that when when people talk about the doom of Skynet, you know, robots taking over, it's not that robots are taking the jobs. One of the other in an almost uninterrupted trends in the world of work is a very clear and steady increase in the number of jobs in the world. The doom of Skynet is moving workers from the jobs and industries and functions that are dying to the jobs, industries, and functions that are growing. And we've done a terrible job of this through the last three industrial revolutions. What do you think as, as readers go through this book um, and start to think about the future of work, what do you think are one or two things that are really going to surprise them about what you, what you wrote about? I think the fact that there will be no net job losses is a surprise to a lot of people. And it's a surprise because they look at the headlines in the world of work. Oh my God, 50% of jobs are going to go. They read social media posts and they're not reading the articles and reading the studies and diving in. So I think that's the first thing that people will be surprised that the most likely scenario is no net job losses. I think the other thing people will be surprised about is that the on-demand labor market is not new and it is definitively not the future of work. All those people, by the way, that predicted that on-demand labor would be 50% of the labor force by 2020, you know where they are now? Where? They're predicting <laughs> the on-demand labor force be 50% by 2030. Uh, just pushing it back. It's ridiculous. It, it is things like that that annoy me when I'm on panels and conferences. And, and that's why I wrote the book. Just to say, no, no, here's the data. Here's the evidence. Let's look at this. And so I get that Uber gets a lot of headlines and the gig economy gets a lot of headlines, DoorDash and Postmates and Instacart. But there isn't a fundamental shift going on in the labor market yet. Might that happen? Sure. But we have history data and how companies actually engage workers, mostly in the gig economy based on the regulatory environment. That would tell us that the on-demand labor market might continue its slow and steady rise. It grew about 3%, took about 3% market share, I should say, from 2010 to 2020. It was about 25% of the labor force in 2010. It's about 28% of the labor force now. You know, I don't, remember, I don't remember reading anything about it in the book. It could have been in there, but I'm just kind of curious. It popped in my head. Like, do you have any thoughts or predictions about what the most desirable jobs are going to be in the future of the labor market? I've got thoughts and predictions about everything. So you <laughs> okay. just ask away. Awesome. We do touch on it very slightly in the book. And I've refined my thinking since I, I published the book to get into a little more pithy, which is to go hard, either hard tech or hard human. Hard tech, easy enough to understand, giants, uh, jobs in computer science and data and analytics and robotics and blockchain and cybersecurity are all growing by leaps and bounds. Jobs in hard human are the jobs that require creativity, empathy, human connection, jobs in HR, in sales, in customer support, in design itself. Those jobs are also predicted to grow because there's no near-term or even medium-term probability that an AI system or a robot can do that function. 
And what becomes really important here, and we touch, about it, touch upon it in the book in regards to the ATM, is that just because a technology exists to take out a job does not mean that that job goes in the near term or even in the medium term. You know, when the ATM appeared in every single bank branch in 1995, there were 500,000 bank tellers in the United States. And everybody in the world of work said, oh my gosh, every bank teller job's gonna go and bank teller jobs are gonna go to zero. And there are 600,000 bank teller jobs today. And it just shows the complexity of labor force predictions. It tells the complexity of the labor source resource decision-making that companies make. Because just because the machine exists and the machine doesn't disguise what it wants to be, hmm. right? It calls itself an ATM, an automated teller machine. I'm a machine that automates the job of the teller. That's what the machine is. And yet 20% employment growth over the last 25 years in the job of teller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where do you put jobs that are more of like in the service industry, like uh, accountants and legal and engineering and um, architectural and things like that? Was that the creative side that you were speaking about? Some aspects of those jobs are. Those jobs fall into what we call the cobot scenario, where there are certain aspects of those jobs that are repetitive high volume processes. And anytime you hear that word, repetitive high volume process or phrase, I should say, know that that function gets automated. But what's super important here is how many of the component tasks of a job are repetitive high volume processes. Our friends, the bank tellers, about half of their job was the repetitive high volume process of taking in money and giving out money. Which is to say that we should expect about half of bank teller jobs to go. And interestingly, by the way, that is actually what happened on a per bank branch basis. We went from an average of 21 tellers per branch to 13, but the number of bank branches more than doubled. Mm. And that's why we saw bank teller employment growth. Wow. The same can be expected about accountants, lawyers, and engineers, and a host of other service jobs, that more and more of the component tasks of that job are going to be done by AI and machines. And it allows the human to do more high-value-added functions. If it presents more than 50% of the component tasks, then generally history would tell us to expect job losses if, if more than 50% of the component tasks are repetitive high-volume tasks. With jobs like that, I would expect some job losses, but not a lot. I see. Well, something else you've done uh, in this whole future of work category is the future of work prize competition. So would you mind talking a little bit about what that is and why you decided to launch it? Sure. I, why I decided to launch it is writing a book is really hard <laughs> and it's not fun. And I was struggling to finish this book. I don't like to repeat myself which is what a lot of business books do. They just say the same things over and over again. And sure. if I've said it once, I've said it enough. And so a friend of mine came up with the idea of asking some of the men and women that I've had the pleasure of working with over the years while building work market, of some of the people that I had the pleasure of interviewing for the book, 
to ask them to make their predictions of the world of work in 2040. Because as we've discussed, I have my framework, history, data, how companies actually engage workers. And that data gives me confidence in making predictions in the near term and medium term, taking us to 2040. But I don't pretend my framework's perfect. I've got a lot of people much smarter than me that I spend time with while researching and writing this book. And so putting together a competition where they write what they think the world looks like in 2040. And I included in the book was, uh, was a great idea. I wish I could take credit for it. It wasn't my idea, but uh, it certainly helped me get to a completed product and a much, much better product because their chapter, chapter 10, which has these 20 essays, by far my favorite chapter. Yeah. And not just because I didn't have to write it. Yeah. You know, you're, you're so, so right. I, I've had the honor of writing two books and they are, they're labor laborious. And, uh, you know, I know you probably have at least one or two hopes of things that people will take from it when they read it. What, what do you think those are? Here's what I'd love people to walk away with. Great. First, is that just because a technology exists doesn't mean it's going to displace jobs. So that is kind of the big conclusion because everybody looks at the robots and AI and they say, oh, there are robots on the factory floor. All the factory jobs are going to go. There are robots in warehouses. All the warehousing jobs are going to go. And that's just not the way it happens. And so new technology does not mean job losses necessarily. And the second big takeaway is you can't paint anything with a broad brush in the world of labor. Just because something's happening in one industry, in one job function, in one geography does not mean that it will happen in others. Just because we've seen some job losses in manufacturing doesn't mean now that the service industry is under the same types of threats that we're gonna see the same job losses there. What is required is a function-by-function, industry-by-industry analysis using history, using data, using how companies actually engage workers in order to come to conclusions. Not, oh, autonomous vehicles are coming, therefore all the trucking jobs are going to go. The book is called The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Jeff Wald is the author. He's also our guest today. We've been visiting with him. And Jeff, we've got a standard list of closing questions we ask every one of our guests that comes on the show. These are kind of rapid fire, and I'll just – there's 12 of them, and I'll just shoot them to you one after another. Fire away. Number one, what is the best memory that comes to mind for you? The best memory that comes to mind – Whew. Uh, I'm going to say the day we sold the company to ADP Great. and the two employees that came in crying because they were able to pay off their student loans. Fantastic. Who's the number one hero in your life? My older brother. What's his name? My, his name is Michael. He is, of all the humans I have met across this world, he is the kindest, most thoughtful, most complete person I know. Wow, that's great. What is the top value you subscribe to? Trust and honesty. Who's the most important person in your life? 
Wow, I shouldn't pause that long. Um, I'd have to say my mother. What's her name? Phyllis. Phyllis. Your favorite thing in the whole world? My favorite thing in the whole world is when I clear out my inbox. <laughs> that's a good thing left that, to do. That's a good feeling. And now they even have a little uh, congratulations. You took out the trash message or whatever when you do that. Yeah. What is your favorite food? Oh, I'm going to have to go Korean barbecue. All right. Uh, most beautiful place you've ever been to? I would say St. Lucia. If you could describe success in one word, what would the word be? Contentment. How do you want to be remembered? Having helped people. If you could go back and find a younger Jeff, what great advice could you give him? I would tell him not to worry so much that his hair was falling out, <laughs> that it was going to be okay. Because younger Jeff, when that started to happen, was not a happy camper. There you go. What's your favorite sound? Ooh, what is my favorite sound? The ocean, the waves of the ocean. And lastly, what is the best lesson you've learned? The best lesson I've learned is how to pick myself up, dust myself off, and keep going. And I learned that when my first startup fell apart, and I was down in the dumps and depressed and broke. And you got to just reach for the hands that are, are, are there to help you. Grab one, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and keep marching forward. Failure and adversity is a good teacher. Um, tell everybody a little bit more about where to find the book and how to find more about you. Well, first I'm going to tell everybody that that was an amazing experience right there with those 12 questions, because cool. I've been doing the, you know, the book tour podcasts and all those things. And that was the best two minutes that I've had. Oh, thanks. I've, you know, it's made me think that much about my life as you just did. Awesome. So the end of jobs. You know, look, we were fortunate when the book came out in June of 20 to hit number one in all of Amazon's HR categories. I wish I could say that the book is available anywhere uh, you buy fine books in your local bookstore. Unfortunately, the vast majority of local bookstores are not open yet. So the best place to find it is anywhere you find your, your best books uh, online. This little place called Amazon is uh, pretty efficient at getting copies of the book out. They are. They are. And uh, do you have a website or anything like that that people can visit? You know, I just actually put together jeffwald.com. I bought the URL in uh, 1998, and for the first time, there is content up at jeffwald.com. I think uh, getting uh, more uh, proficient at asking questions is just how do you make yourself a better coach. So those, those are some uh, gold in my toolbox there. Uh, so thank you Amazing. thank you for doing that thank you for being on today i really appreciate you taking the time i'm so interested in this topic and i know our listeners will benefit a lot from it and they'll benefit from getting that book too so it's a fabulous read i, I really appreciate you writing it and uh, hopefully you you can come back again sometime I, this was such a pleasure thank you so much for having me back anytime you'd like you'd have me we'll have a business and leadership lesson next on better than before because adventure still needs chasing. We gave the newly redesigned 2021 Subaru Crosstrek a more powerful engine. Plus, standard symmetrical all-wheel drive. 
And Subaru is the most trusted brand for six years running, according to Kelly Blue Book. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Join us for the Subaru A Lot to Love event going on now. University Subaru. Homegrown and proud of it. See dealer for details. Receive weekly coaching tips from Tony Richards, delivered straight to your inbox. Whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, Tony can help you reach your goals and give you a competitive edge within your industry. Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo covers topics ranging from leadership development to teamwork to company culture and more. Text the word leadership to 38470 to sign up for Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo or sign up online at clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back to Better Than Before. I'm Tony Richards. You know, it's almost impossible to take an intense emotion and de-intensify it. It's like driving a car at 100 miles an hour and then trying to come to a complete stop. It's somewhat easier to swerve the car in a slightly different direction than it is to stop it on a dime. You got to reposition or redirect the intense emotion if you want to try to do something with it. If you try to shut it off, you're going to encounter resistance and possibly even more intense emotion stacked on top. One tactic an angry person will use when you try to stop them from being angry or you try to reduce their emotion, they will use control. Almost all anger is a desperate attempt to gain control. And in order to gain some control over you, they will bring up things from the past, things that will be hard to argue with, attack, attack, attack. Now, you can counteract that position by remaining calm, keeping them focused on the present situation. You can use silence. You can find a solution to the current problem or make a suggestion. But when you try to encounter that anger or that, that attempt at control head on, it's going to escalate, not de-escalate. Now, keeping that in mind, just hold that thought there for a second. Here are five things bad managers and bad leaders actually believe about anger. Number one, they actually believe intimidation gets you respect. Number two, they believe if they don't get angry, the other person will actually get away with something. Number three, if they don't strongly confront an angry person, then the person won't back down. They think confronting them head on will cause them to back down. The actual opposite is true. Number four myth bad leaders and managers believe is if I can get really angry, it will help me calm down. In other words, if I can have this big emotional outburst, that's my solution to starting the calm down effect. And number five, anger is not something I can help. It's just the way I am. How do you deal with logic and thinking like that? <laughs> well, here's five things you can do when you encounter someone who's angry. Number one, try to reverse the emotions. When you speak, instead of being high-voiced and forceful and angry, try to keep a calm, level tone in your voice. Number two, become a masterful listener. Listen, take it in endeavor to understand. 
Number three, don't get pulled into the emotion by focusing on your own hot buttons. Disconnect the emotional wires to those hot buttons so when they get pushed, nothing happens. If those buttons stay connected and those buttons get pushed, you're going to lose because they're going to punch your button, and once you lash out, you already lost. Number four, if you made the mistake, admit it freely. Apologize if appropriate. Do not apologize if you're only using it as a tactic. They will see that as patronizing. But if it's really your fault and really your mistake, go ahead and admit it and go ahead and apologize. And number five, provide guided problem solving. Ask future-oriented question. How's this going to help us going forward? How will we handle this in the future? What, what are we going to do about this when it comes up again? Do not assume you know the answers and do not necessarily provide the answer. Get the angry person back to rational thinking on their end and get them looking forward instead of looking backward to what is the object of making them mad. Try to take the focus off of the past situation that you're not going to be able to change you're not going to be able to modify. You're probably not going to be able to make up for it. So you need to get the focus off of it and get it onto the future down the road. It's going to be hard to do, right? It's going to take practice. You're going to have to stay very um, self-aware and self-regulated. But try to remember anger is a natural human thing. It's a natural. We are emotional creatures and anger is a natural emotion. When it's overused or it's used as a weapon, anger is very ugly. And if you don't stay calm in the middle of someone's angry fit, well, you just need to remove yourself from the situation. You just need to leave. Go away. Uh, go to another room. Leave the building. Do something to remove yourself from the situation if you can't handle it. If you're just going to lash out and have an angry fit of your own, it's better to leave. And it is possible to build positive and productive relationships with people when you respond to them positively. And once the anger storm has passed, you need to try to communicate with them to coach them and help them see the destructive effects of the too intense emotional interaction that you had previously. Don't get into resistance. Don't avoid them. Don't not talk to them. Don't wait for them to apologize. Don't make them make the first move. You need to make the first move. You need to be proactive, but only after the anger fit is over and try to be positive when you do. That's our show today. Better Than Before is brought to you by University Subaru. Join us for the Subaru A Lot to Love event going on right now. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. On behalf of our associate producer, Whitney Coker, and our chief producer, William Foster, I'm your host, Tony Richards, reminding you we'll see you on a new episode next week. And don't you dare forget, everything gets better when you get better. Thank you for listening to Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast powered by Clear Vision Development Group. For more resources from Tony, visit clearvisiondevelopment.com. Join us next time for another episode of Better Than Before with Tony Richards.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.